All right. Got a Bible today? Did you bring your Bible? I, I'm sure about the Bible. I'm not sure about anything else much. But Genesis chapter 4 in your Bible, as soon as you find it, stand to your feet and we'll read it together, okay? Genesis chapter 4 in your Bible today as we read from the book of Genesis once more, this wonderful, wonderful book. Genesis chapter 4, and the last time uh, I spoke on Genesis, we spoke about Cain and Abel. So we're going to pick up at the end of that story here after Cain has murdered his brother Abel. And it says in verse 16 that he went out from the presence of the Lord. What a sad, sad statement about any person. They went out from the presence of the Lord. And he dwelt in the land of Nod, and sometimes the land of Nod is the Florence Baptist Temple on Sunday morning. But not today, huh? He dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden, and Cain knew his wife. That's a biblical euphemism for there was a sexual relationship she conceived, and she bare Enoch, who built, and he built a city. Cain built a city and called the name of the city after his son Enoch. And then Enoch was born, and there is a long genealogy here of eight generations of Cain's family. And then we go to chapter number five, or uh, chapter four and verse 25. Adam knew his wife, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. And then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. What a great phrase there. Mark it in your Bible. For the first time, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. That might mean prayer. It also could mean that they identified themselves openly and publicly with the Lord himself. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him, male and female created he them, and he blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. Can you imagine that? 930 years Adam lived, and he died. And if you'll go down through the rest of chapter 5, which I will, will not read right now, you'll see another genealogy. The genealogy uh, is of um, Seth's family. This is his family tree, if you will. Eight times it gives a person's name. It gives how long they lived. And then it says those three words, and he died. And he died over and over like a drumbeat. That phrase is repeated in chapter 5 here of the book of Genesis. Thank you. And you may be seated. My aim in this message today 
is to cultivate in you a love for God's Word. That's always the first thing. Above everything, when I finish my course, I want the people of this church to say, well, when Brother Bill Monroe was the pastor of this church, he taught us to love and to obey the Word of God. And so that's first and always. And then I'm trying in the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters here, to answer what we call the ultimate questions. The ultimate, the most important questions any person ever answers in life. Who am I? Where did I come from? What is my purpose while I'm here on the earth? Why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? And where do I go when this life is over? If you can answer those five questions, and there's some other, other very important ones, but those five particularly, if you can answer those five questions, I promise you, you have gone a long ways towards understanding what life is about, the most important thing about life. Now, the time here is about 16 or 1700 years before the flood, the great flood. And that would make it then 2,000 years approximately from the flood to Christ, and then 2,000 years from Christ to where we are today. So we're looking at anywhere from about 5,800 to 6,000 years ago when this account that we're reading today, when it actually occurred. You understand there are very few things that ever survived the flood. Very few things. The flood took away everything other than sometimes an archaeologist or some uh, construction project will go deep, deep, deep down into the earth, sometimes hundreds of feet. And there in one of those sedimentary layers, they will find some artifact, a hatchet or a, a knife or a piece of a pottery, a bowl or something that was carried there in the waters of the flood. But other than that, we could, we could take everything about that civilization that ever has been discovered, and we could put it in a room half the size of this auditorium today. There's very little remaining of pre-flood days. However, there is one written account of pre-flood days, and that account is the Word of God, the Bible that you hold on your lap today. And that's the only record that was written contemporaneous with these events that we're describing right now. The only record we have of early man, Cain and Abel, were probably over 100 years old when Cain killed his brother. I won't go into the reason scholars think that, but that's the opinion. Over 100 years old when he murdered his brother. And by the way, we can't assume that Abel was the second son. We always assume that from reading the Bible without stopping and thinking, but it's possible that there were many other brothers and sisters uh, at, that were born between Cain and Abel. You see, the human longevity at that point in time was very, very long, and we read about Adam, that he lived 960 years. If you'll average all the people's names and how long they lived in Genesis chapter 5, they averaged a little over 900 years, if you can believe that or not. I believe that, by the way. 
And the reason I believe that people live that long was because, number one, God's plan before the fall of man was that man never die. He didn't plan for death. Death came as a result of sin. Every death today is a result of sin. God's plan, I believe, was that man would live forever and that God had a completely different plan that involved eternal life for them. And when they sinned, just as God had promised, death came upon all. The other reason is that, that I would believe they lived these long ages here is because of the pre-flood environment. The environment that they lived in is totally different than the environment we live in. Everything changed with the flood. Let me say that again. Everything changed with the flood. If you assume that everything before the flood and back to Adam has been the same throughout history, then you're making an awful big assumption. You can't prove that. And so I believe things were radically different prior to the flood. And by that, I mean that there was a vapor canopy that was unleashed at the flood that brought down the waters. There's not enough water on the earth to be able to cover every mountain and to do all that the, the Bible describes. But there was that vapor can, canopy that was there hanging in the air, going clear out into space, scholars believe. And that filtered out the ultraviolet rays, which cause aging in, in, in our world today. And then the food that they had would have been so much more nutritious. The water was so much more pure. The air would have been so clean and pure at that point in history. Uh, all of the food, the water, the air was uncontaminated as it is today, or as, as it is not today. And then there were no harmful mutations at that time. There had not been time for the mutations that take our lives and make us susceptible to diseases. There hadn't been time for them to develop. And uh, so people were not afraid of cancer or of heart disease or all those things. They had not yet developed because the, the, the body was still pure, if you will. There were no diseases. And so it's not hard for me to believe that these people lived that long as the Bible states. It's been estimated by people who study population trends that at the time of the flood, at the time of the flood, now that would still be 1,600 years ahead of this, but at the time of the flood, there were approximately 292 million people alive on the earth. 292 million people, about the population of the United States. And the, and the way they came up with that is if you assume that everybody's going to live 500 years, and that's a minimum, that's almost a little, a little more than half what the Bible records here. If you assume that they had children past 100 years of age, if you only figured that they had two daughters and two sons each, and they lived those long ages, it would, be, it would come up to about 292 million people over 17 or 1800 years. So when you calculate it out, there was a large population of people that were growing. At this point, there were not that many. We don't know how many, but there's no basis on which to calculate it. And we do know, though, that when God Almighty spoke to Adam and Eve at the time that they fell into sin and there was the curse, 
Look with me in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Again, one of the most important verses in your Bible. God said, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, your seed and her seed. So there's a promise that God made here that there would be two streams of humanity, and that's my message to you today. Two streams of humanity that emerge out of the background that I've given to you. Dr. W.A. Criswell, one of my heroes of the ministry also, made this statement in a message on this text. Dr. Criswell said, and I quote, in the curse that God pronounced, there is a division in the human race. There is the seed of the woman and there is the seed of the serpent and the human race is forever divided into these two categories, these two streams. Those that are following after the promise of the Messiah and those that are following after the strange devices of the serpent. And the Bible says, who the Bible says is the dragon, that old enemy and arch accuser of mankind, the serpent, Satan, the devil. Now, then you have the outworking of those two races in the two children born to Adam and to Eve. And so there is Cain and the Cainites, and there is Abel, God's righteous servant, and those two boys are following opposite bents and opposite devotions, and so their lives are turned in opposite directions. Two streams of people, two lines, if you will, of humanity, and they're marching in completely different directions in their life. Two streams of humanity, that's my subject. First, we have the family of Cain. We read a little bit about him. Beginning here in chapter number four and verse 17, you have the line of, of, of Cain. You have the stream of humanity that emerged from Cain. He's the father of that family. Eight generations are listed here in chapter 4. In 1 John 3 and 12, there's a brief description of Cain's character. You need not turn there, but here's the phrase. It says, Cain, who was of that wicked one. Cain, who was of that wicked one. In other words, Cain followed after the serpent. He followed after Satan. He's a follower of the devil himself. Jude chapter 11 or verse 11 says something about his religion. And it describes people who have followed in the way of Cain. They have gone in the way of Cain. And the phrase, the way of Cain, Jude 11, is the way of human works for salvation, human endeavor. The, the person who goes to church today, even you could attend this church, but your idea of salvation is you're going to work, you're going to do good deeds and good things, and you're going to try to please God. And if you do enough good, and your good outweighs your bad at the judgment, then the Lord will send you into heaven. And if your bad outweighs your good, then you will not go to heaven. 
And you would be surprised, even today, as long as we've had the gospel and the Bible, how many people really believe that. And they say it in different ways to us, like, well, I'm doing the best I can. And I tell you, your best is never going to be good enough. Cain could have gone to the altar that day and said, I brought you the best I have, Lord, the best, the best cantaloupes and the best tomatoes and the best beans. I've been out here farming in the heat. This is the best I can bring to you. This, this is what I would take to the fair to try to win the blue ribbon with. But God rejected his offer. God rejects your efforts to achieve salvation through your own works. It is not of works. It is of grace through faith that we are saved. I can't say that too often because there's something in the human mind. There's something in our makeup that makes us believe that we've got to do something to earn our salvation. Cain listened to the voice of Satan. And he was a works-oriented man. And he brought the fruit of the field and he offered it to God. It's the way of Cain, the way of works. Human efforts to please God. Now I go then to chapter 4 and verse 25 and I see a different line emerge. It's the line of Seth. Adam knew his wife. She bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, she said, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel. In other words, he's the substitute, the replacement for the son who was murdered. And to Seth and to him, there was and to Seth, to him was born a son. It doesn't tell us anything about him other than he had a child. He's a father. And he called his son's name Enos, and then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, Seth was a man who called upon the name of the Lord. He identified himself with the Lord Jesus Christ and God Almighty. He prayed. He worshiped God. He was a worshiper of Almighty God. And this man, Cain, was born, if you'll notice there in verse, oh, let's see, down in, where is it, chapter 5 and verse 3. He was born when his father was 135 years old. <laughs> so they were still bearing children, see, at, at a very advanced age here. And he began to pray, verse 26, because he realized he had a need. He didn't come with the best that he could produce of his own works. He realized, I have a need and I'm a sinner. I have a fallen nature. I've got to bring what God requires. And obviously God had instructed them and he brought a sheep and he offered that sheep. He took its blood. He killed it. He took its life and he offered it to the Lord. And do you know the Lord was pleased with the offering of Abel and of course of Cain or Seth, his son who followed him. If you go over to the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 4, don't turn there. We don't have time. But you will see that the genealogy of Jesus is traced from Christ himself all the way backwards, all the way to the third generation or the second generation of people. And you will see the name Seth, the line of the godly and not the line of the ungodly. 
You know, when you think of these ancient people, don't think of some knuckle-dragging, mud-cake brute with a leopard skin around him and a club in his right hand like you all these pictures you've seen in the history books and on television and so on. That's not what these people were. These people were very intelligent. These people were wealthy. These people were literate. These people were creative people. Let me show you. If you'll go to verse 20 of, verse, of chapter number 4, you'll see that they, they invented the tent. And by the way, if you go to the Middle East today and look at some of those Bedouins over there, they prefer to live in tents still instead of houses. They have air-conditioned tents with television and flat screens and everything that you have in America, but they choose to live in those Bedouin tents over in Saudi Arabia and so on, even today. I saw those when I was there. And so somebody began to develop tents, and then they began to practice farming and ranching, such as have cattle. And then you go down to verse 21, and they have harps, and they have organs. They understand some technology because an organ works with wind going through a pipe. And so they understood musical instruments. They had arts. They had entertainment. If you'll go down to verse 22, they, are, they have uh, metallurgy. And so they understand how to make brass and how to make iron and how to mix the ingredients there to make those metals stronger and, and more flexible. So you see, th these are not these cavemen that you think about. These are advanced people. And yet, they divide into two streams. One of them, godly, the line of Seth. A love for God, a love for other people, a love for truth, a love for prayer, and a love for worship, a respect for God's word to obey it and carry it out. And then there's the other line, the line of Cain. No time for God, no time for worship, no time for prayer, self-willed, proud, liars, even violent people. And it's always been like that, these two streams running through humanity. What did Dr. Chris will say? You have the outworking of those two streams in the two children born to Adam and Eve. There's Cain and the Cainites, and there is Abel, God's righteous servant, and those two boys are following opposite bents and opposite devotions, and so their lives are turned in opposite directions. In the little booklet we gave you men today, on page 20, Dr. Adrian Rogers quotes from Psalm 78, 5 through 7. Listen, and especially listen if you're a father. He hath established a testimony in Jacob, and God has appointed a law in Israel which he commanded the fathers. Fathers, are you listening to me? God commanded the fathers that they should make them known to his children that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope on God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. One of the greatest failures in all of America, in my opinion today, 
Part of the reason we're in the trouble we're in is because fathers have turned over the rearing of children to their wives in most cases. And the fathers talk to their kids about sports. And they talk to them about recreation. And they talk to them about current events. And they talk to them about their friends. And it's a rare, rare bird who every day has his Bible open and is instructing his children and praying with his children and pleading with his children to live for God throughout their life. Let me ask you today, which stream are you in? The line of Cain, intelligent, wealthy, creative, people that may even make a good neighbor to you, but just don't have time for God. And you read chapter four, you read the genealogy of, of, of Cain, and you, you know what you find? You find people who don't have time for God. That's basically, that's the definition of godly and ungodly. What is a godly person? It's not a, a preacher or a priest or somebody who just lives his life, you know, devoted to the service of the Lord. A godly person is a person who has God at the center of their life. An ungodly person, it doesn't mean they're bad, that they're immoral. It just means they don't have any time for God. It means that God's out of here on the periphery. They give him an hour a week maybe, and maybe none at all. And they don't talk about the Lord at the table. They don't talk about the Lord with their friends. And they would never witness. They don't want to hurt, make anybody feel uncomfortable. That's an ungodly person. God's out here on the margins. A godly person, God is at the center. And you read chapter 4 of the book of Genesis, not one mention of God, not one mention of prayer, worship, or anything spiritual in the life of the Canaanites until you come to verse 26. And then along comes Seth, the son of Abel, the godly lion, and then began men to worship Almighty God, to call upon the name of the Lord. When I get to chapter 5, I see a second thing I want to call your attention to, and that's the universality of death. That phrase I mentioned to you, and he died, and he died, and he died. It appears eight or ten times there. And it doesn't matter how long they lived. Some of them lived 600 years and 700 years and 900 years. Doesn't matter how long they lived. Everybody had one common destiny, and they died. Everyone died. George Bernard Shaw, the famous playwright, said, so far the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one die. Pretty impressive, I would say. And he was really quoting, in effect, Hebrews 9 and 27 in your Bible. It is appointed unto man once to die. Not several times like the reincarnationists are telling you, once. The Bible totally rejects reincarnation. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, judgment. After that, the judgment. You see, death is the fulfillment, as I've already stated, of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17. Look there with me. Go back just a couple of pages here. We're not very far along, are we? 
chapter 2 and verse 17, and of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that you eat, thou shalt surely, surely, no question about it, you're going to die. Up until then, there had never been any death. Up until this point, death was a concept that nobody had ever experienced or knew anything about. But the day that Adam and Eve ate that fruit, they died. You say, well, they didn't die. It says here Adam lived 960 years, and we don't know how old he was when he ate that fruit, but let's say he was 40 or 50 or whatever it was, and he continued to live another 850 years or more. He didn't die that day. Yes, he did. You've got to understand the word death is used in the Bible. The word death in the Bible means two things. There's spiritual death, which means alienation and separation from God. And there's physical death, which means alienation and separation of the soul from the body. The moment that he put that fruit in his lips, his spirit died. He was separated from God because a holy God cannot countenance a man's sin. And he sinned. And that day, his spirit died. What do I mean by spiritual death? I mean the relationship with God is gone, separated. The Holy Spirit that lived in Adam moved out that day. And now he is a shell of what God created him to be. He has a body. He has emotions. He has a mind. He has a will. But he has his spirit died that day. And that's really what salvation is about. Because you go to the book of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, And you hath he made alive, who were dead, who were dead, speaking to unsaved people, or, or people who have just gotten saved. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And why does he say you were dead? Because before a person is saved, until you receive Christ, you're spiritually dead, spiritually dead, separated from God. Now, Adam died the day that he took the fruit. He died spiritually, and he lived on for hundreds of years, and then one day he died physically. And so until you're saved, you're spiritually dead. When you receive Christ, your spirit comes alive. And then when you die physically, you're separated from your soul and your spirit. Your body goes in the ground and your spirit and soul, if you're saved, go to be with the Lord. Death only means one thing in the Bible. It means separation. This is a kind of a morbid subject, I understand, but don't you think I ought to talk about it? Don't you think preachers ought to remind folks of that every week because people come to church and they live like they're going to live forever? You're not going to live 900 years, but the people who did live 900 years, they died too. You know, a famous preacher one time made this statement. He said to the people, I know you don't like for me to talk about death. I'll make you a deal. You quit dying and I'll quit talking about it. Well, he didn't have to quit talking about it because we need to be reminded it is appointed unto man. There's an appointment out there. Once to die, 
were stationed next to a funeral home. And every now and then, I'm standing out there and I see a truck come by. It comes by all the time. I mean, a lot of people die. So the casket truck comes by often. And as a big truck comes down Irby Street and it says, Batesburg Casket Company. And they pull in down here and I said, well, there's another load. Another load of caskets being delivered. And sometimes I'll walk out here and I'll see them carrying the caskets into the back of the funeral home there. And you know what I think? Is mine on that load? Is mine on that truck? There's no way I could know. There's no way I can know. I wonder if mine, the box I'll be buried in is on that truck. A woman kept on inviting her neighbor to come to church. Over and over and over, she invited the neighbor to come to church. David Jeremiah told this story. And the neighbor never came. One day the neighbor said, I'm going to church with you tomorrow. And so Sunday came and the neighbor gets ready and they go to church. And when they get there, the woman, the church member was so excited. Her neighbor had now come with her to church, finally. And she thought, oh, boy, I hope the preacher has a good message today. Well, the preacher stood up and said, open your Bibles. Today my text is Genesis chapter 5. And he read it. And the woman is getting uncomfortable. I don't think my neighbor's going to like this. And he kept on emphasizing, and he died. And he died, and he died. And the woman said to herself, Oh, my soul, I wouldn't have had her come today. He's, all he's doing is reading an obituary of these ancient people. It came time for the invitation. The neighbor raised her hand. The preacher said, Come forward and receive Christ. The woman walked out of her seat, never been to church before, and came down and said, I want to have Christ in my life. And she got saved that day because the preacher was faithful to the text and he preached and reminded people, it's appointed unto man once to die and after that, the judgment. But there is one exception. When you look in chapter 5 and verse 21, one other thing I want to point out to you. Chapter 5, verse 21, there's an exception. His name is Enoch. He lived 60 and 5 years, and he begat a son named Methuselah. Now, the book of Jude, chapter 14, tells me that uh, Enoch was the first prophet. It said Enoch prophesied. So he was a preacher, and he was a preacher who knew the future. God revealed to him the future. And take your maybe and circle that word Methuselah. Do you know what they, that means? The, the literal meaning of Methuselah is when, when he dies, it shall come. When he dies, it shall come. He could see into the future and he named his son when he dies, it shall come. I, I sure hate to call my son for supper and Think of it, hey, when he calls or when, when he dies, it shall come. <laughs> and you're calling your son. That's what his name literally meant. Now, what was he referring? What is the it that shall come? It's the flood. And the 
year that Methuselah died, God brought judgment upon the earth. He was, Enoch was prophetic. He could see that. God revealed it to him, and he named his son that. And it also says something about him in Hebrews 11.5. It says he was translated. Now, here in the book of Genesis, the way that it states it, it said he walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 more years, and he begat sons and daughters. He had a lot of children. And all the days of Enoch were 300 60 and five years, and he walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And what is that phrase, and was not? It's translated in Hebrews chapter 11, he was translated, meaning he was picked up and carried from the earth up to heaven. And he is the one exception here that we have in the book of Genesis of a person who never died. And so over and over and over in that chapter, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And then there is Enoch. He walked with God, and God carried him up to heaven one day. Now, let me tell you the significance of him. There's an entire generation of people who the Bible teaches will be translated up to heaven. They're here on the earth, and one day they're not. They're gone. They're vanished. And that's the doctrine of the rapture. Here was the first man who preached and taught the rapture. And notice it comes before judgment. The flood is judgment. But God took his man out of the world before the tribulation, before the judgment occurred. And you and I have that promise ourselves that you will not see wrath if you know Jesus Christ, that you will be translated, that you'll be carried off of the earth and up to heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ at the rapture at his return. I hope you're ready for that. I hope you're in the stream of humanity that is the stream that dates all the way back to Seth, a godly man, a godly father, a godly mother, a godly human being. Worship of God is at the center of your life. And you know the Lord and you're looking for him to come. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.